0: Hello and welcome. I'm joined today by a friend who has written a book called Sunday. Jack Frenicevich is a deacon and curate at Cornerstone Valparaiso and adjunct professor of writing at the university there. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Alistair.
0: First of all, why did you choose to write on the subject of Sunday?
1: (laughs) Um, Well... The short answer is I'm trained to become a priest in the Anglican Church, and one of the main things you do there is call people to worship on Sundays. So I wanted to figure out what Sunday meant, um, (laughs) how it relates to the Bible, um, and what more besides the last chapter of each gospel and some scattered references to the Lord's Day in the New Testament we could draw from to imaginatively and appreciatively understand what Sunday means in Scripture.
0: So it seems that in considering Sunday, we're almost automatically drawn into an investigation of time more generally. Um, What can you say about the way that the consideration of Sunday relates to a broader consideration of what time is for Christians?
1: Yeah. um, Time gets a lot more attention in the Old Testament. (laughs) Um, I... uh, was drawn originally to a study of the Sabbath a number of years ago and then of Israel's festal calendar, in Leviticus 23 and 25, sometime after that. And Alistair, you know that I wrote a paper actually under your supervision with the Theopolis Institute. We love their fellows program. I was a happy fellow there. But there's a there's a sad moment looking at the Old Testament's beautiful and complex and theologically rich configuration of time. And realize that Israel's calendar is not the church's calendar and although there are relationships between them they aren't quite the same thing um some overly simple responses to this discrepancy are to say that time was sacred for Israel and for uh, the church you know every moment is holy (laughs) but as uh, the prophet syndrome from the incredible says you know if every moment is holy um, that no moment is holy. <laughs> um, so I, I felt, you know, um, as an heir of the shorter Testament, the New Testament, you know, what can we what can we get from the Old Testament that endures? Um, is there a kind of a theology of time, a sanctity of time that remains relevant for for Christians? I think the first departure point, that maybe you should steer me again after this is that Leviticus gives, Israel a brand new social imagination after they've just been released from uh, slavery in Egypt. And I come to appreciate Israel as a recently traumatized, or I shouldn't say recently traumatized, but a long traumatized nation who's been, you know, uh, persisting and enduring in uh, an oppressive enslaved state. And now comes out and has to order a new social life from scratch how do you have property how do you have neighbors what does it mean to love your neighbor how do you manage people well and um, you know justly steward positions of authority Um, and issues like the sanctity of time the sacredness of time are related to justice concerns and economics concerns and rehabilitation concerns and it seems um, important that as the church, is those who are freed from the power of death, we ought to be rehabilitated uh, in some other kind of way to see um, the rhythms of time as working toward our redemption and not um, not just there.
0: So when we're thinking about Sabbath or Sunday, part of what we're reflecting upon is the relationship between the six days and the one day when we talk about weekend for instance we often think about it merely in terms of time to recharge where the time of the weekend or the time of sunday is considered under the principle of work it's there to enable us to get back to work again um rejuvenated in our energies and yet sabbath seems to suggest something more than that it's not just uh rebooting for the sake of work it's something that stands over against work in various ways um can you speak a bit to the way that sabbath um and the days of work how they relate to it uh, to each other
1: yeah much of what there is to say about this is fairly evident it has already been said by people um, before me and better than me but um one of the insights that sparked this book was um The way in which the Sabbath command addresses um, those who are in charge of work, um, Peter Lighthart had pointed out that the that the Sabbath command is given in the, the masculine singular, addressed to one particular person rather than to a collective. And that person who's told you shall do no work um, is then told you uh, or your children or your servants, or your animals, the foreigner in your midst. And it becomes clear by the end of the commandment that this is addressed not just to a human being, but addressed to the head of a household, uh, the one who can tell himself and also those under his care when it's time for work or not. And so the Sabbath command in Exodus um, has two immediate meanings. The first is you do no work and you also do give rest to those who you cause to have to work. Um, And so it is addressed uh, to heads of household, to middle managers, to teachers, to deans, uh, to those who set work schedules um, and beyond that. So I think that if you start looking at the Sabbath from Exodus, rather than say from Genesis, the vision for the Sabbath becomes um, a way of participating in the Lord's household that is in contrast to Pharaoh's household. Um, The Lord treats us in ways that Pharaoh doesn't and Pharaoh had treated us in ways that the Lord never would or never will. Um, So one, I suppose, newer contribution I'm trying to make is to say that um, it judges both the work that we do and uh, the work that others make us do or on the converse, the work that uh, we make others do.
0: When it's given to us in the context of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment is related to the original creation week, uh, the context of Genesis 1 to 2, where it's the Lord's pattern of labor, as it were, that sets the pattern for human labor. What do we learn about the Sabbath from its first occurrence within scripture in the context of creation?
1: In Genesis 1 and 2, we get a picture of a world in which God is the primary authority and he fills all and is in all things. And when he's in charge of all of the acts of world building, all of the acts of um, creating a space um, and causing flourishing to happen, and... Um, this is the way that he behaves. Um, God himself rests. He identifies his work as finished. um, And he blesses the time itself. It's a very uncomplex world. um, And it's one that we look back to nostalgically. We look at the garden and long for what that life was that we've never experienced personally. And also projects forward to a world in which the heavens descend to the earth um, and God is effectively, all in all. Um, and he rules us, again, according to the same kind of pattern. Um, one thing it does is it connects. Uh, well, it it focuses the concept of work on world building, which I, which, which I really think is there in both Genesis and in Exodus. Um, Genesis 1 describes God not simply doing work or going to his job, but building a world according to his vision. And Exodus does the same kind of thing with Pharaoh. It opens with Pharaoh building a world according to his vision, although with less materials um, and less (laughs) divinity than God. And so it describes the kind of rest um, that we receive and the kind of work from which we rest as the work of world building, you know, either. Building Pharaoh's world or building God's in some way. Um, I think that helps us understand or more deeply appreciate um, descriptions of work and rest given by, for example, Jesus in the New Testament or St. Paul in the New Testament, who describe similar kinds of labor and fruitfulness in doing the work of God. Um, they are also world building, um, not building. Um, the city into which they were born, but building but in the kingdom of God, but in the kingdom of heaven, as it's given them to do.
0: So as we look through Genesis 1 to 2, um, there seems to be implicit within the text a sort of vision of time. You start off with the rhythm of evening and morning, the day and the night, the condition of the light and the condition of the darkness. Then on day four, the central day, you have the establishment of the lights in the heavens to elaborate that principle of light and darkness ruling over the day and the night. And then you have furthermore on the final day, um, bookending the whole creation week with the first, this day of rest. And so even there we have something of a structure for time going forward, not just that week, but that week provides an archetype for all later weeks and also a structure that will be the basic setting up of a beat and the setting up of a a sort of phrase that will continually repeat yeah and it it seems to me that that is um a very important part of the burden of the text as we go through the um the book of exodus i think that's elaborated in various ways but it, it it does seem to me that when we're dealing with the creation pattern the importance of the week it really stands out and one of the things that is interesting to me is um the question of is there any natural grounding for this principle of the week why is it that the pattern of seven days the pattern of the week the pattern of the sabbath um is so foundational for our social life still
1: Man, I, that's a that's a question that I found pretty much zero scholars very helpful on. As I as I read through, what I read through um, in my research, uh, the week really does stand out as a non discernible unit of time. The way that a day is discerned and a month is discerned and a year is discerned based on solar and lunar cycles, um, those are so immediately given. Um, the week. The week is not. The week is given by revelation in some ways. Um, the One one thread I tugged on a little bit that's, that's, that's interesting is, is that um, even Israel, when they would reckon a week in their calendars, their week could fluctuate between seven and eight days in the ancient world because their decision was to split one month, which, as we know, isn't exactly 30 days, but depending on the time of year is... You know, roughly twenty nine point something days. Uh, they would they would divide their their month into four weeks um, because it was useful for them to have a um, a quartered up concept of the month, um, which shows um, <laughs> the tension be- between what could you call like the, theo- the, the 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 theological or religious ideal of um, imitating God's seven-day week, and also the asymmetrical reality of having a um, a not quite twenty-eight-day, more than that month, you could maybe even see it as a,
0: a an extra sabbatical principle. There is something of the leftover character of the seventh day. You have the complete structure of the six days of labor that are very symmetrical, the three and three. And then you have this remainder, the remainder that is the day of rest. And so that there might be other remainder periods um, might be a continuation of that principle or expansion of it into other um, units of
1: time. Yeah, it seems like there's something there. I can't quite put, my, put my finger on it. Do you have any hypotheses or theories, Alistair?
0: Um, I'm not sure. Um, it's an interesting question, of course there have been various ways of relating it to the seven celestial bodies and other yeah. theories that have been put forth. I know other people who are working on this question and yeah. yeah, it's a very interesting one. And if anyone has good answers to it, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> Me but too. in the context of the Exodus, we have the gift of the Sabbath as a covenant sign. And the way it's described at the end of chapter 31 is very similar to the covenant sign of circumcision as we uh, see it in um, Genesis 17. Could you maybe speak a bit about the way that the Sabbath functions within the covenant of um, Sinai? What is it about the um, Sabbath that sums up um, the events of the Exodus such that it could be seen as a fitting sign of the whole covenant?
1: Yeah, I know you've written some of this yourself, Alice, there, um, and maybe a little bit more than I have, but um from my angle, um focusing on the book of Exodus as I as I have, um the Sabbath is a distinct social principle from the social principle of Egypt. And if you go behind the text or if you're engaged in other ancient Near Eastern studies, um Data has surfaced saying that the Akkadians possibly and the Ugarites also had some kind of seven-day rest cycle. Um, there's speculation about where that came from, whether they copy Israel, whether they came to it themselves, dividing up the month into four periods. Also, but by my read, the heart of the Sabbath in Exodus is. Um, Is that you no longer work for Pharaoh building his world, but now you work for the Lord building his. And the Lord, unlike Pharaoh, is one who's sufficient unto himself to finish his work and to bless it and sanctify it and effect rest for all of his agents, those who work underneath them. Everything he calls to fruitfulness, whether it be uh, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the grass that grasses out or the humans themselves. God does the work of making fruitfulness happen. um, And they need not um, override that time um, or anxiously put work where rest belongs. Do what Paul calls submitting once again to a yoke of slavery, um, which he does in a, what we call it, a metaphorical way or a spiritual way. um, When we have the the concrete story of human on human slavery in Exodus Um, to break the Sabbath, either by doing work on your own or breaking the Sabbath by causing others in your power to do more work is to, um, what's that word bottleneck (laughs) the work of the Lord or circumvent his timeline. I do find it
0: fascinating looking through um, the books of the Pentateuch and even into um, Joshua to see the many ways the principle of Sabbath plays out and one of the areas where you do discuss the principle of the Sabbath is it within the festal calendar of Leviticus 23 and could you speak a bit about the importance of the festal calendar the relationship of the festal calendar to the underlying principle of Sabbath and the ways in which That principle is refracted in these various feasts. What is it about the Sabbath that we can see from the manifold forms that these feasts take?
1: Yeah, um, the Pentateuch is not strictly Sabbatarian in the way that um, some Christian traditions prioritize the Lord's Day over and against what we could call annual holidays. Um, um, It begins with the Sabbath as the seventh day, and that's the sign, but the sign itself is embedded into a whole calendar that reckons the year and the seven-year cycle and the 49 and 50-year cycles as theologically and socially significant units of time. Um, It seems that in Leviticus, the Lord is starting a new nation from scratch. And to start a new nation from scratch requires giving them reckoning units of space and time. Um, uh, and my mind's going lots of different directions here. But for them to mark their, their uh, seeding and harvest times, um, As not just times where certain work is required, but certain kinds of commemorations of what the Lord's done for them to bring them out of the place that they came from. I think there's some things that are fairly clear about it. Uh, In the calendar given in Leviticus 23, every seventh day is a Sabbath. The calendar goes on to describe seven particular holidays or units of festal time. It gives the seventh year as a Sabbath year for rest. Um, every seven sevens of year the jubilee comes the feasts that are longer than one day are seven days long plus one maybe that leftover or remainder element comes into play there you know there is a way of conceiving of unleavened bread and the Feast of tabernacles as seven day feasts but also as eight day feasts that have two sabbaths um and in, in addition to having a um a holiday that takes 49 years to count up to. They have a holiday that takes 49 days to count up to, the Feast of first fruits um, or, um, yes, the Feast of first fruits begins a 49-day count, the 50th day, which is Pentecost. And Israel's seventh month itself contains the majority of their feasts. And so whether it's the use of the number seven, um, the reckoning of holy time, or the command to rest and to recall what the Lord has done, all of those themes or aspects are um, present in the other um, the other holidays too.
0: The Sabbath also plays out in various other parts of the material of the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua in relationship to um, Israel's worship. It's the space that it occupies and into social practices such as slavery. Can you speak a bit about some of the other places beyond the calendar that we see the principle of Sabbath applied.
1: Yeah. After the command is given to keep the Sabbath holy in Exodus 20, Exodus 21, uh, towards the beginning of the book of the covenant, an extra special subset of laws within the Pentateuch. The first law that's given is a manumission law where uh, slaves are manumitted in the seventh year. And the way in which their manumission is described, uh, both at Exodus 21, and when the law is repeated again in the middle of Deuteronomy, I think it's either 12 or 15. I believe it's 15, um, where the manumission law comes back up. The language used to describe the manumission of the slave mirrors, or I mean, I'm talking with Alistair Roberts, so I have to use the word echoes, (laughs) echoes the theme in Exodus where uh, Pharaoh involuntarily coughs up uh, bread and wine and livestock, the kinds of things that Israel would need both to live on and to offer up sacrifices of their own. Um, so is the manumission of a slave um, in the way that it echoes Israel's national manumission from Egypt becomes a kind of reenactment of the Exodus. A man and his family are sent out from a house of slavery have a certain kind of liberty, and they're given things to make offerings to God in their new place of residence.
0: And beyond that, in Deuteronomy 15, we have the poor laws and other principles that elaborate Sabbath in the way that you treat those who are in need within the land. Also in places like Leviticus 23, laws of gleaning would be another way in which you're applying the concern for the poor that the Sabbath really holds forth.
1: Just. For- just briefly there, I think that the laws of gleaning, I've not thought enough about, but it's that principle of leftover again. And I wonder whether um, the Sabbath that lasts more than one day as the month goes too long, um, the idea that after the 49th day, there's the 50th day, after the 49th year, there's a the 50th year of extra, extra rest, gleaning, um, Leaving over things that could be further divided among those who have the being instead left for those who have less. Um, there's something there, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> maybe one of us will write something about it. But you were saying,
0: and as we go further into the story, we see various ways in which the Sabbath is an element, or, um, the principle of seven. So think of the story of the manor, or in um, the book of Joshua, the way in which the city of Jericho is brought down on the seventh day with seven trumpets blown. Um, and there seems to be something of a principle of Sabbath that's implicit even in those sorts of stories. And then also I think of the way that the construction of the tabernacle has a Sabbath principle at its heart where you go through the pattern of the seven days of creation, mapping the aspects of the tabernacle onto the elements of the creation. And you go through that pattern twice over. And can you maybe um, put together some of the different elements of um, Sabbath practice that are brought out by these various refracted forms? Um, Or maybe put, put that differently as we, see all these different ways in which the principle of Sabbath is mentioned in slavery, in the um, practices of annual feasts and celebrations of the Lord's great work for his people, in the deliverance of the land to the people, in the ways in which they care for the poor in their land, um, in the way in which they receive daily provision, um, in the ways in which the Lord establishes a place where he dwells in the midst of them. Can you maybe putting those things together and um, give a sense of what is the Sabbath containing as a reality at the heart of Israel's Exodus life?
1: Yeah, I love you. Read of Joshua, by the way. I, I I hadn't reflected enough on that as I as I put together my argument in my book. Um, but one we way in which it maps on to what I've been thinking about is that the Sabbath in Exodus, the Sabbath law in Exodus 20 um, explicitly commemorates uh, the Lord who created the world. And in Deuteronomy, it explicitly commemorates the Lord who redeemed his people, Israel out of slavery. Um, And papers have been written about, you know, whether the Sabbath is more about, commemorating creation or commemorating salvation, two things for which the church thanks thanks God. Um, One thing that the biblical narrative does is, I think, flesh out all that creation means and all that redemption means. And the way in which the Lord created us is not exhaustively described by Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but his creation of Israel, his creation of a holy people for himself his creation of the church is um, configured by Genesis and also many mission narratives. And also in addition to the construction of a garden sanctuary, the construction of a tabernacle, the construction of a temple, even the clearing out of land upon which that temple could be built. I think we know that where we see the number seven either as a deep structure in a text or an explicit reference in a text and especially when it has to do with time. I mean, seven seven speeches about the tabernacle in different parts of it. Uh, seven days to knock down uh, Jericho's fortresses. That links back to um, answering the question, how does God create that which God creates? And how does God redeem that which he redeems? Um, and so when we commemorate God's work on our celebration of the Sabbath, our celebration is inclusive of all of those things he's done in history, and perhaps all of the things that are analogous to that, um, that are described in the biblical text, but um, we can also name as things which God has done. So, um, the biblical narrative gives us a deeply fleshed-out um, picture of, you know, how how God creates, how God redeems. And the Sabbath is meant to commemorate um, all of that.
0: The Sabbath often is mentioned in later parts of the Old Testament. In certain parts of the history, we think about the end of Nehemiah, for instance, or in various parts of the prophets where neglect of the Sabbath or um, distortions of practice on the Sabbath or promises of some sabbatical principle in the future, whether jubilee or some greater Sabbath occur in places like the temple of Ezekiel or elsewhere. Can you maybe discuss some of the ways in which the Sabbath was a continuing principle in Israel's life and some of the ways in which the corrections and challenges of Israel for its practice and distortion of Sabbath clarified um the way that the sabbath principle should be understood
1: i think i would begin by saying that um it's important to keep in mind and i say it's important to keep in mind because the prophets seem to think it's important to keep in mind there's a difference between the sabbath on the ground and the sabbath as idealized and given independent took um in Genesis, it's just God by himself in the garden and his choice to finish his work and rest uh, seems fairly uncomplicated. There's no adversarial element And the command given fairly triumphantly in Exodus is to say, you know, as God has freed you and given you rest, you also ought to walk in that rest and give that rest to other people. Um, but as civic life, as social life becomes complicated, there's all sorts of temptations to exceed God's time or to overuse uh, the laborers God has given you to steward. Um, and so the prophets um, who I have focused on um, who say things like, I hate your Sabbaths. and, and The first response is, well, yeah, well, because your Sabbaths are Sabbaths in which you rest at the expense of other labor. And, and those who have are um, only experiencing the kind of thing that looks like what God gets in the garden um, by neglecting the poor among them or or, um, or using them in some way. Um, are there any certain prophets you want to talk about or are you seeing things besides that that you'd like to highlight?
0: Yeah, I see for instance in the prophecy of Ezekiel there are several references or allusions to um, the principle of Jubilee. And you see that even in the design of the the temple, the significance of um, multiples of 50 and various multiples of 50 or 25, half a Jubilee or seven, even the gates where you have three chambers on either side and they're one great chamber at the end. It's the principle of Sabbath. you have the three and the three and then the crowning um seven and so it seems that even in its presentation of holy space that holy space is sabbatical and that promise of this temple is at the same time a promise of god sabbatically dwelling with his people and so i think there are instances like that that are um significant and also the way that the Sabbath is constantly drawing Israel back to its generative root, the events of the Exodus and the way in which constantly grounding themselves in that will enable them to continue the pattern of life that um, is essential to their existence as a nation. And so the neglect of that is also a national threat because it puts them at, at risk of being removed from the land and being um, cut cut out from the sabbatical life into which the Lord has brought them. I would love to hear your thoughts on the way that the Sabbath principle is seen in the Gospels, because the Sabbath is perhaps in the Gospels, more often than not, a cause of controversy. And Jesus is challenged a few points in the Gospel of John, for instance, in Matthew as his disciples go through the grain field and um rub the grain to um to eat it it seems that sabbath is a disputed principle and Jesus often seems to certainly the average reader to be breaking the sabbath or somehow to be at odds with the sabbath can you maybe speak a bit to the way that you understand Jesus' sabbath practice and the disputes concerning sabbath in the gospels
1: oh yeah and i'm more excited to talk about it now after hearing your insights on ezekiel um and your mention of joshua i can talk about those first for just a moment before getting to jesus because this is really new and really fun um there's a way in which you can't separate sacred time from sacred space um Israel, when they're freed, are supposed to be um, a generative nation, a wise nation on a mountain that the rest of the nations of the earth would flock to to learn from and to copy. Um, And that even though the Sabbath is a sign of Israel's covenant with the Lord, um, it would become a similarly generative principle around the world um, as um, ideally it is done on on earth as it is in heaven um, and so the hope of joshua is that as israel is given their own space to put it one way given land in which to enflesh their ideals um, or the lord's ideals rather that they live up to the moment and their world is and their 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 land is full of justice i think that um, That's why the the, uh, ethical commitment to the Sabbath continues. There really is no other way to describe um, and to prescribe good negotiation of labor and rest than that. And and God doesn't let it go. And and the temple has to signify God's righteous reign through his righteous rulers on the earth. And it's going to take some kind of some kind of power from heaven to actually upturn um, those who are keeping people from rest, whether it's the spiritual forces, unclean spirits, demons, or simply wicked or unjust rulers who act the same way that the unclean spirits and the demons do. Um, I notice in the intertestamental l- literature, that the Sabbath is eschatologized. <laughs> I can't say the word. Eschatologized. Eschatologized. <laughs> there it is. The same way it is in Ezekiel, and Melchizedek um, emerges as a figure who's going to declare the ultimate Sabbath year, the ultimate jubilee, the ultimate cancellation of all debts, um, because it's not going to work from the ground up, so it looks. It's going to have to be from the top down, so the Messiah becomes a big proclaimer of the Sabbath. And all of that, of course, is in the background, when Jesus, in Luke, for example, proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. and It appears like that Melchizedekan figure or like the new temple in Ezekiel who says, you know, I'm, I'm here. This is the time. Um, there'll be real manumission, real release of those who are bound, real forgiveness. And it's, it's happening now. And the gospels do portray Jesus as what looks like a breaker of the Sabbath. And um, so what's really going on? Um, some people, when they look at Jesus in the Gospels, um, will point to places where they see him resting by himself on a mountain or going by himself to pray and call that his form of rest. And there's something there, but all of those stories that describe Jesus doing something on the Sabbath don't show him resting on the Sabbath. That's not what he does, um, and that's what, where, where the controversy comes from. Um, and I have two thoughts here. One is, um, well, I've been reading the books of Maccabees lately, and one of the significant controversies in the Maccabean period is that Israel is being attacked um, on their holy days, including on the Sabbath, and being caught off guard. And so Mattathias, who's a fairly conservative um, keeper of the law, decides that what's more important on the Sabbath is that life is preserved. Then life is in danger. And so he permits Israel to defend themselves and to take up arms on the Sabbath. And that appears to be an innovation. Israel hasn't been attacked on the Sabbath before, at least not in sacred history. And so it takes a courageous innovation to say, you know, the spirit of the law, you know, if the Sabbath really is made for man, then we ought to, you know, defend ourselves. And Jesus, one of his controversies, gives that line. Uh, it, he asks the question, is it is it better to, to save life or to destroy it? And when he gives that line, he's not making it up. He's drawing from the Mattathian tradition. Yeah. So I think that one answer to those who would say that it appears that Jesus is a breaker or disregarder of the Sabbath would say he's really just participating in a, in a different tradition of it but also some Pharisees contemporary to him also participated in. He just happened to be arguing with ones who were on the other side, who were perhaps more scrupulous and had lost the spirit of the law in that that way. And the second thing to say is that Jesus, in his words, describes himself as granting rest on the Sabbath. Um, As he's healing a woman and he's told not to, Or asked if he was aware of the commandment. He says, Yes, I'm aware of the commandment. But which of you, if you had a donkey in a ditch, would do something to help them out? And on the face of it, it seems disrespectful that Jesus would compare a woman to a donkey and put them in the same category until you remember that the original command in the book of Exodus says, You do no work, you and your daughter and your female servant and your livestock. And so I think that in the Gospels, Jesus sees himself as a head of household um, who's not um, so over-focused on his own practice of rest that he's not also concerned with granting rest and proclaiming release to people who are unable to do the rest themselves. One insight I have from Luke, um, Luke tells seven stories of Jesus doing things on the Sabbath. And in each of the first three stories, The action verb that's ascribed to jesus is the verb rebuke Um, jesus rebukes an unclean spirit he rebukes a demon and he rebukes an illness and the consequence of him doing that on the sabbath is that the people under those powers who have those powers rebuked are then released unto, unto their own kind of kind of rest the practice
0: of sabbath that we talk about in the old testament Is and also within the Gospels, is different from Christian practice. We tend to meet on the first day of the week, on Sunday, your book is called Sunday, we've been talking about Sabbath, and it seems that there's some sort of missing piece. How does all this stuff about Sabbath translate into something that's fruitful for us when we're thinking about Sunday?
1: Yeah. The simple historical fact is that uh, the Edict of Milan includes a rule that the day of worship, for the sake of unity, should be on the first day of the week rather than the seventh. But the historical answer is not very satisfying, uh, or very imaginative, or very deeply connected to Scripture. Um, so much so that there's, you know, real movements within the Christian world that would say um, we really ought to, you know, keep worshiping on the seventh day rather than the first. The real creative proposal of the book, Alice, there is that um, when Luke describes the first day of the week, as he does it, he's drawing not only on the Sabbath but also on the Passover and on the Feast of First Fruits, um, and um, yeah, I think there's I, I think there's something there, but to talk for a moment about um, no, I should backtrack just a second. Um, the day that Jesus rises from the dead, which all the evangelists call the first day of the week, isn't just the first day of the week, but it's the first day of the first week after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the Levitical calendar, the first day of the first week after the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Feast of first fruits. And so, putting it all together, Jesus is raised from the dead on a day that's already considered a holiday, the Feast of First Fruits. Um, so, I think that to understand the significance of us worshiping on that day, um, is worth going back and doing a whole other I- investigation on First Fruits. In addition, um, I think the first thing to say about the Feast of First Fruits is the way in which the Scriptures describe it as connected with the feast of passover and passover celebrates israel being freed out of egypt and first fruits celebrates them now having a new land from which to offer the first of its fruits um i think that the clearest place that the scripture does this is in joshua chapter 5 where joshua gathers the people they celebrate a passover and the very next day um they enjoy the fruits of the land for the first time and and those two holidays together work as a, um, an, a an abridgment of their sense of history. Um, they're able to celebrate what they can celebrate on first fruits because they remember right before they do everything that they've been freed from. Um, one of my professors in seminary called it both the exodus and the isodus, <laughs> um, out of one place and into another. And um, Passover, it's... Itself isn't um, isn't ever meant to stand on its own apart from where Israel is freed into, and I think that in Christian parlance we say the same thing: we're we're set free from something and we're set free for or into something else. And um, first fruits always captured the back end. Um, would it be the back end? <laughs> I guess just the second half of the completion of. Passover, the the real fruitful, um, long term settled life in a new place. And so Sunday, you know, if you, if you have to pick between uh, two halves of a day, we commemorate Jesus' death, and we also commemorate his resurrection. There's a way in which we could make Friday our special day. We could make Saturday our our special day. Um, but we mostly emphasize the Sunday part of the story. Um, we we commemorate God's act of raising Jesus from the dead. I think that's the theological significance of shifting shifting um, the days. Jesus' resurrection is a first fruits of a new creation. Um, the eighth day has been identified as a day of new creation. And yeah, that's right, start.
0: And I think that's very naturally related to the rationale given for the Sabbath in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the first being the creation and the second being the act, great act of redemption. And so we're um, defined by a new creation and a new act of redemption, which are both associated with the, the eighth day or the first day of the week. One book I've found very thought provoking on some of these sure. questions of time is um, Patrick Stefan. He wrote The Power of Resurrection, Foucault Discipline and Early Christian Resistance. And one <laughs> of the things that he's exploring within it is the way in which time and other aspects of spatial distribution, our practices, these sorts of things, are means by which power can be exercised upon us and we can be formed as a particular sort of people under certain authorities. And he observes just how important it was for the early church to have a calendar and a practice of time. And that unified practice of time was one of the means by which the church was formed as uh, distinct people, uh, distinct from the ways of practicing time current among their neighbours, and formed into a sort of people that relate to the past, the future, and the present time in distinct and distinct ways that are formed by the fact of Christ's resurrection primarily. And so it seems that that disciplining of time continues in the life of the church, whether that's in our weekly celebration as we gather together on a Sunday morning and as we maintain something of a day of rest or in the broader pattern of the church calendar as we have a sense of a commemoration of acts of God's deliverance and redemption um, events associated with Christ's birth, death, resurrection and his ascension and Pentecost. And so I'd be curious to hear some of your thoughts on the way in which that discipline of time can be Um, enriched in the life of the church what are some of the ways that we can lean into that discipline and disciplining of our time in fuller ways
1: yeah i think we all we all get this at a gut level as individuals we want to discipline ourselves according to time and i'll speak for myself i am lazier and more procrastinating than i wish that i was (laughs) um and i um because i'm not the only personal creative agent in the universe um i can't divide my projects up into six or seven distinct parts and do one per day um the way that i see done in genesis one so so there's a way in which i read genesis one and feel frustrated (laughs) um you know but but um only as a way of reminding myself that I'm not the Lord God. And I think that pious and devoted Christians have some impulse to do things like set aside a personal quiet time to set aside um, a day or a weekend every month or a quarter or so for a personal spiritual retreat. Um, and this individual impulse, I, I do think is harnessed by the church um, to say um, yeah, you know, uh, that's fine for an individual to do, but we also have on offer um, ways of structuring your experience of the year, your memory, your identity around this one generative moment where God redeems us and newly creates us in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, So speaking now as a churchman, I'm a uh, deacon at a small church, what we try to do is to and like celebrate more meaningful days. We make a big deal out of Holy Week and out of Easter. Uh, we make a big deal out of Lent and Advent, Christmas, and all 12 days of Christmas. Um, try to give that holiday all the room that it deserves. The prophets in Scripture are a clear and realistic witness that um, it's not all about Setting up holidays, but if you don't use them the right way, <laughs> um, if you don't keep them the right way, then you'll become just as sour as everybody else, and, and you won't be a force of redemption in the world, but a force of oppression. But just the concept that we could either create or receive a sacred calendar invites us to communally the, disciple ourselves according to the same. Um, the same kind of time and um, the last thing this is making me think of right now is you know i went to an Ang- anglican seminary i was a theopolis fellow and so as a result like i got a, a whole handful of friends who are priests and deacons or pastors who are all living by the same church calendar and so i see them on instagram and um, posting the goose that they're cooking for michaelmas and um, when, I, when i see four of my friends cooking a goose for, for Michael Miss, I get jealous again. and <laughs> think why am I you know what was I doing on Friday, September 29th that was so important that I couldn't think to drive into Chicago and buy a goose and do the same kind of thing. Um, but keeping the holidays in a robust and happy way that can celebrate God's work not just in raising Jesus, but in you know saving Israel from Egypt putting them in a new land and doing all the things He's done for us, also. And I just like the idea of gathering together and forging the counter-society of the church that really tries to focus its memory on the fact that God is creating and God is newly creating. And if we don't remember that, we're in danger of slipping into um, the same kind of stuck space everybody else is in.
0: And I think that sort of practice has the effect of maybe focusing us more upon the great acts of God in history, not just doctrinal ideas, because every year as we're going through the pattern of the church calendar, our minds are being drawn back to foundational events, not so much just foundational ideas. And that, I think, gives a more participatory understanding of what it is to be a Christian, that we are participating in the reality brought about in history by our Lord's coming, his death, resurrection, ascension, and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. This isn't just a set of doctrinal or moral ideas. It's a life that has been established that we're invited to become participants within. I, I do wonder also whether there is something very distinct about the Christian practice of leisure, as Sabbath as a sort of leisure. And I was reflecting upon this a week or so ago at a conference in which we were discussing the decline of the liberal arts, and it occurred to me that very few people have leisure as a fixed, leisure in the thicker sense, as a fixed part of their, their week or their calendar. And yet every single um, Sunday or Sabbath, there is a principle of leisure that the church upholds, a time that is set apart from practical, narrow practical ends, that is designed for meditation, reflection, for um, celebration, for thanksgiving, for communion with others. And it seems that in the absence of that, many of the ways in which we are drawn to reflect upon something greater than the immediacy of our current circumstances and labor um, would be cut off to us. It's precisely the gift of the Sabbath that opens our horizon to something beyond the immediacy of our daily labor.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling that in a more acute way this year than before as a writing instructor at a liberal arts university, um, where, um, most of my particular students are commuters, athletes, and, or, um, nursing pre-medical or engineering students who are also paying their own way through school. And they all describe, you know, the anxiety and the stress and the overwork to get, you know, all the, all the work done. And then here I am, and. two or three hours a week in the classroom with them, trying to invite them to discuss a short story with me. Um, And discussing a short story is on one level really easy because you just hear the story and pay attention to it, call out what you notice and wonder about what's going on in the characters' lives. And it's so enriching, Um, but it's also so difficult if you can't turn off all of your other responsibilities. real or imagined and so I find myself fighting um, the first few minutes of every class to try to proclaim some kind of (laughs) edict of rest among the students and say hey we have we have we have one hour during which you owe nobody anything you may not use a cell phone you may not use a laptop you must bring your physical copy of the text and I'm just trying to intellectually shake them by the shoulders and will them into enjoying what I get to enjoy as a person who's paid to read stories (laughs) and uh, discuss them with students. Um, And it's absolutely true that those who um, are the least encumbered by outside stressors um, are the most able to lean back in their chair and hear a story by Wendell Berry or Flannery O'Connor or whoever it is that day and just get to enjoy a character, explore their motives and wonder through their motives that, you know, what the, what the the human heart is and what humanity is and how we are distinct. And so, yeah, it it isn't, um, the Sabbath as the legislated one day a week during which reflection happens, but that, um, there is this, um, there is this struggle to um, siphon off certain spaces. And I think that's the wrong word, um, <laughs> but to, to put boundaries around certain times um, and make them times for reflection and leisure upon things that are of transcendent interest. And in the classroom, it's not the acts of God, um, except far as thinking about humanity is thinking about the creative act of God.
0: In conclusion, um, I would love to hear any thoughts that you might have, maybe two or three suggestions on how people listening to this might improve their practice of Sunday. What are some of the things that maybe they could learn from reflecting upon the Old Testament teaching concerning the Sabbath or uh, reflecting upon what Sunday means in the light of Christ's work or reflecting upon a biblical theology of time more generally, how might this cash out in practice?
1: It's a great question to end with. Um, let me try to um, let me try two things. I think that most of the teaching that I've received about the Sabbath and uh, most of the popular literature about the Sabbath simply recommends rest or tells people to do it. And in the Gospels, frankly, my, f- my favorite thing about Jesus on the Sabbath is that nowhere does he tell people to rest. And um, What he does is he rebukes the powers that keep them from rest, and he releases them from the bonds that bind them. Um, and it's fleshed out in his teaching as well. I think that I get at this in the book, the language he uses to describe forgiveness ties back to the Sabbath. The language he uses to describe love of enemies ties back to the Sabbath, especially in the Pentateuch. And so I think that when it comes to improving or honing your own practice of rest on Sunday, the first thing to do is not to look at yourself, um, but to know that Jesus is one who actively rebukes the powers that oppress us. And once for all, when he um, we dethroned sin and death in a particular way. Um, but the first act of rest is to cry out to Jesus, who um, in fresh ways leads us into rest. Um, it's not simply a practice in imitation of God, but um, a mercy continually given and on offer by Jesus. And I think that what that turns us into is people also who don't nitpick one another's Sabbath practices, but also learn how to proclaim release and to rebuke the untrue thoughts. And um, Paul says this, and I can never remember his words exactly, but taking thoughts captive and asking Jesus for help and to captivate our thoughts as well. I think as one element is thinking of Jesus, not first as an example of how to rest, but as who makes rest happen? I think that the second, um, the second is you know too big to make a personal practice in in the way that very few of us will ever have the opportunity that Joshua did in the book of Joshua to really lead a whole nation of people into a new space, um, and to see the denunciation and the crumbling of an old order. <laughs> and to spur people on to settle um, there. But there's lots of ways in which on way smaller scales, um, we are in that position. And When you move to a new home and um, or w- w- when, as a, as a teacher, you take on a new classroom or you're given some new responsibility, that is a participation in the kind of conquest we see in scripture. And In scripture, what conquest is for, is for setting up sacred space that embodies sacred time um, so that rest can be proclaimed in a particular land. And I think that's the vision for the Sabbath. Um, And what I'd love to see among Christians is um, a deep and appreciative sense of how God prioritizes sacred space and sacred time In the formation of a people in history. And creative, um, just any kind of creative implementation of um, encoding sacred space, or sorry, encoding sacred time in whatever space we have any authority over. Um, That's how I think we get to live lives that um, resonate with major themes in Joshua and Ezekiel and the other prophets that we mentioned.
0: Jack Brinichevich's work is Sunday by Theopolis Books. I'll leave the link for that in the show notes, and I highly recommend that you read it. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you, Alistair. It's been a pleasure.